The Pellicle Podcast is supported by our Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to support our website, podcast and magazine, please visit patreon.com forward slash pellicalemag. I'm Matthew Curtis, and this is the Pellicle Podcast. Welcome to the Pellicle Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Curtis, and over the next hour, we'll be digging into some of our favourite topics. Beer, wine, cider, along with the food and travel that goes hand in hand with these experiences. In today's episode, I get to visit one of my favourite places in the world, St. John, a place the late Anthony Bourdain described as the restaurant of my dreams. A truer statement has seldom been uttered. I was invited by Will Bucknell, co-founder of Kicking Horse, a beer distributor with a wine industry background, helping to educate and supply some of London's best restaurants with great beer. The subject of food and beer is one of my favourites, which is unsurprising considering they're some of my favourite things. Put them together and you have perfection. After Will and I chew on this subject for a while, we're joined by St John's co-founder Trevor Gulliver, a man with a great many opinions. And whether you agree with him or not, you'll no doubt find his views to be thought-provoking. This episode was recorded in a working restaurant ahead of a busy service, so please bear with the background noise. And please don't go anywhere once this interview has finished, as I'll be reading another piece from our website. A rumination on citrus fruit from chef and founder of Nanban Restaurant, Tim Anderson. So whatever you're doing, please sit back, relax and enjoy the show. You're listening to the Pellicle Podcast. So how did Kicking Horse start? You've had a wine background, I was told. Yeah, so we we started uh, just over four years ago. Um, we, it was uh, myself and uh, my best friend, and actually just just around the corner, uh, we met up for a beer, and we were both at points of our career where we either carried on working for a big company, mm-hmm. or we actually set up and do something, did something on our own. Yeah, it was about six years ago, and we were actually looking at setting up a restaurant, and we wanted beer to be a massive focus of it. Six years ago, it was very much meantime, Camden, yeah, bit of Beaver Town, absolutely, Harbour, just about starting wild beer kind of coming on the scene Um, and so it was a really exciting time we went around we visited about 90 breweries um, and we were actually down in the southwest with Eddie from Harbour Mm -hmm. and started thinking about whether we had the money to be able to set up a restaurant or not (laughs) Um, the costs even before we had started were starting to spiral out of control Uh, we were having, having had a meal with him and Really interestingly, from all the brewers that we met, they really struggled to get into restaurants and find their place in restaurants. So we kind of t- took it back. I'd worked for Babendum Wine for about eight years. Yeah. Um, and we thought there must be something better that we can do. Beer's always been a sort of add-on to a, bit, add-on to a, a menu. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, putting wine lists together. I'd spend three months with a restaurant putting a wine list together. Yeah. The list would go live and you'd have Peroni and Heineken shoved on the end of the list. And so there was no, there was no pull through and there was no driver in terms of beer. So we actually, at that time as well, we met a few merchants in terms of seeing what they could offer um, in terms of the types of beers and the service that they could provide as well. So this was well before we thought about setting up Kicking Horse. Yeah. Um, all of them came with a big pack of beers. It was amazing if you knew anything about beers. Mm -hmm. So big pack of beers said, right, pick what you want. Sometimes they're available, sometimes they're not. There's 60, 80 brewers on there. Yeah. And there was no help in terms of saying, this is what we think would work for your restaurant. Where are you thinking of setting up? What type of food are you doing? Yeah. What, when do you think it's going to be busy? Is lunch tray going to be a big part of it? Mm. And so we kind of thought there must be a better way. Um, so we set up Kicking Horse uh, in a stable. Okay, that's where the name comes from, I take <laughs> well, No, we were, uh, so I was actually a ski instructor for a bit. Okay. And uh, I taught out in Banff in, uh, well, I taught in Lake Louise, but yeah. lived in Banff in Canada. Yep. And one of the most amazing ski resorts next door to it is uh, Kicking Horse, which is okay. a fresh powder, powder resort. With the restaurants, we wanted to set up a few restaurants and uh, have a sort of, have a group name that maybe everyone didn't know so it, they were all going to be named after ski resorts around okay. Canada so kicking horses it was already no, no intellectual property concerns with well not going into America so <laughs> <laughs> hopefully not yeah. hopefully not um, yeah we did we did wonder about kicking horse coffee coming in but anyway um, yeah so we uh, kind of we, we set up um, in the in a shed, uh, the first delivery that we did two weeks after coming up with the idea was into Hawksmoor Spitalfields. Yep. Uh, I spoke to a mate that I knew there. Said, "You've got to take some of this beer. We've got a huge amount of it." Yeah. Uh, Tom, my business partner, pulled up in his old beat-up Beetle, got some beer out the back, and uh, kind of went from there. What beer was that? Uh, it was uh, Thornbridge Zara mm -hmm. in five hundred mil. Uh, and Jaipur, and then they took a couple of cases of modus operandi from... Did you ever put the kernel in there? Because I've always drank that there, was that something they did? No, so there? that was something, we don't actually work with the kernel. Mm -hmm. um, I love what they do, but we don't actually work with them. Um, that was something that had, was a historic thing that's gone throughout yeah. Hawksmoor um, ever since they started. And the great thing with Hawksmoor is they are incredibly loyal. Um, they know how much kind of kernel helped them out and they sort of started us around the same time and they yeah. both grew sort of together so i think there's there's, there's always been a sort of a uh, is that, is that common in the restaurant world that kind of loyalty uh, <laughs> i'd love to say yes <laughs> um, but uh I, yes i think so i mean we so we now deal with about 500 restaurants in london okay um wow and uh, yeah. uh, it's not insignificant. <laughs> no, um, and then obviously we, we sort of we work with so Hawksmoor have got one up in Manchester and Edinburgh now, and so we we do send beers to them. Um, Meat Liquor, who we deal with, have one in, in Leeds. Used to have one in Bristol. So we, we sort of have um, organically grown into certain areas as well. Um, so yeah, so no, we weren't part of part of putting Kernel in, but uh, yeah, it was quite exciting. Getting beer into, into Hawksmoor. You know, six years ago, that's a huge deal. Really. Yeah, yeah. So we, it was, um, it was something that kind of started off um, just kind of talking to. I had a few contacts from my wine days, um, but actually, it was amazing how many 
actually what we started with was, was, was not those contacts. They were completely new kind of people that really got what we were trying to do. Yeah. Training at the start was massive for us. We just knew that if restaurants were going to move away from Heineken, if they were going to move away from sort of that first rung of craft beer, mm. you know, sort of the meantime-esque people, yeah. Yeah. we needed to be able to get across the stories of the breweries, the stories of the beers, um, in a way that wine companies are very, very good at. Mm-hmm. Uh, walking into a restaurant, any waiter will be able to offer you advice on a wine. You don't have to be a sommelier to be able to do that. And I think the big thing is as well, is customers going in to a steak restaurant. Yeah. They know exactly how they want their steaks uh, kind of cooked and they know whether it's a good steak or a bad steak with wine and beer mm. there's a nervousness of saying actually what I like yeah. um, and I think the training of the staff is really really key for that um, yeah. so in-house training we also run beer champions courses as well so with all of our group customers we take uh, it's usually sort of assistant GM level people away for a day to a brewery um, usually a London brewery just because it's nice and easy uh, it's 9, nine till 3.30 uh, runs through beer history it runs through sensory tasting it runs through uh, important beer styles um, and fault testing as well um, they get to be taken around the brewery by the brewer and see a working brewery so they really kind of immerse themselves in, in, in the understanding behind beer yeah. um, and then they are our people back in the restaurants who we can then contact and say, look, you've got a new beer coming up. You're the person that needs to kind of get that across to your staff. Um, so it's been really massive for us in terms of uh, kind of increasing the awareness of the beers that are out there. Yeah. Um, we did, uh, Hawksmoor is, is a great case study in terms of what we've done because we kind of started off having to do in the periphery. Yeah. We then started working, they had uh, Meantime Lager and Pale Ale as their sort of across group house beers, um, including the Colonel as well, but that kind of sat, people could either have the IPA or the Stout, I think. So, yeah. um, And then we took that over about two years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, we brewed in collaboration with Harbour. Um, their lager to start off with so we kind of started off from there you know it was only just yesterday one of them rang me up and was asking for a lactose sour IPA Brilliant. so it's amazing <laughs> in, in four years that the, the, the progression I wouldn't through. drink that one I like the steak personally no, no personally yeah, but, no, probably uh, not yeah. but the great thing is all of the Hawksmoors have particular things that they're very good at yeah. so Air Street and it's uh, slightly more fish um, you've got Guildhall and the breakfasts so there's, there's loads of things that we can sort of play around with yeah um, so yeah the lactose IPA was for the fish <laughs> oh, fantastic fantastic so we're in St John right now yeah uh, near Smithfields how did you go about getting beer into this restaurant because it's one of the most well-known restaurants one of the most famous restaurants in London so and you put you didn't just put beer in here you put a whole bar in here so yeah. how did you achieve that so we uh, we got introduced uh, and it is quite it's quite a it's quite a close community, the restaurant trade. Yeah, um, sounds we, a, bit like, a bit like beer in, yeah, in a way. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think, so we got, uh, we were introduced to Trevor and Fergus. Um, and sort of, Trevor is, uh, you know, incredibly knowledgeable um, about all the kind of drinks side of things. And beer was is one of his passions as well. Yeah. Um, we wanted to kind of we spoke to them about what we were aiming to do within the restaurant trade um, to give people beers that they could be as proud of as their wine lists Um, and obviously St John imports all of their own wines anyway Um, so we knew how kind of 
influential they were not only in the restaurant but also the wine trade. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So we kind of spoke to them um, about doing something a little bit different. In here they had uh, Meantime's own fonts, uh, so they had to go anyway. Yeah. Um, I mean, this, this restaurant thrives on a minimalist aesthetic and you've achieved that with your nice sort of slate and chalk yep. pump clips. There's no, brand, there's no beer brand in there, which, yep. which is, fits. But I can't imagine what it would look like with a huge, meantime, branded tower sort of sat there. Exactly, and I think it was, it was, it was a shock when I came in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'd, I'd eaten in, I'd eaten in a, a bread and wine uh, St. John before we started dealing uh, with them. And uh, came in and suddenly saw this enormous uh, meantime branded mm. font. And it just, like you say, it just doesn't, it just didn't fit with what they were trying to do. Um, and I think it was, luckily we were all at the same sort of point. Trevor was looking for something a little bit different. We were there. Um, and so we came to them with not only changing the aesthetics of the bar, but the beers as well. So we wanted to put something in and have something that fit with the environment that you were drinking in, the people that were coming in. Having the beer badges is fantastic in yeah. a in a in a pub. Yeah. Bright colours. I mean Thornbridge badges aren't everyone's cup of tea, no. but they're bright colours mm-hmm. and you notice them in pubs. Indeed, yeah. And but the problem is in here we wanted to have a sort of ever-evolving beer list. Mm. So the beers were always going to be different from different breweries and the visual the visualization of it coming into here when we used to have the beer badges on was just something that we didn't like they didn't like and so we had to come up with something a little bit different that fits a little bit nicer plus it's really great and really quick to be able to change a beer Um, if we've got an idea if we've got something coming in then let's get it on let's change up the badge let's uh, and let's get in and talk to the guys so we were talking about how beer is evolving and this is something I want to talk to you throughout the day is because something that I'm witnessing is this sort of uh, artisanal side to beer it's it's almost very challenging to describe beer as as beer because of the range of styles that are available strengths ABVs and and flavours and we're seeing a developing world of, of wild and sour beers that have a lot in common with natural wine, low intervention cider. Um, I've spoken a lot to Felix Nash of the Fine Cider Company, who's doing a, a, a as you are with beer, he's doing with he worked with in St John as well. Cider. So. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> so, uh, and you know, we're seeing beers that are two, three year old blends, Grand, Grand Cru's or cuvées, if you will. Um, but these would retail at uh, a very high price in a restaurant, £20, £30. Um, I'd pay that, but then I write about them and I know a lot about them. But do you think there is a point at which beers like that will be able to sit alongside wine on the wine list? I think, there's, I think, I think the time's coming, mm. and I think there's, there's restaurants that do it very well already. Um, I was in, was it Smoking Goats? Yeah, Smoking Goats, yeah, uh, Kiln, mm. um, they do it really, really nicely. So mm-hmm. we always, uh, it's something when we, when we started working with those guys, we did a lot of work with them in terms of getting their beer offering right. So that's you as well, working with those two restaurants? Yes, yeah, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and it was great because they sort of had this idea of having some keg products on there. Then there's nothing else other than the 750ml bottles. Yeah. Um, and it's brilliant because they are hugely passionate about them. Um, the uh, One of our account managers, Tim, who actually looks after them, um, he's from a wine background as well. Uh, 
Yeah. Actually, I think all of our all of our sales account managers are, are from a wine background. But that must help immensely when you're in a restaurant setting because yeah. you like beer reps are seldom used to dealing with with the, the culture here, which is different to a yeah. bar. Yeah, hugely so. It was something that when we when we started, we were really kind of wanted to make sure that we got it right. Mm-hmm. Um, the sales guys that I, I knew in the, in the industry were all wine, had wine backgrounds. So we just wanted to make sure that if they were going into a restaurant, they were approaching me in the right way. Now, I'm not saying that beer sales people can't do that, but there is a definite way of talking to restaurants and talking to pubs. We have a pub side of our business, but everyone involved in that comes from a beer pub background. Yeah. Everyone involved in the restaurant side of things comes from a restaurant or drinks or wine background. There's talking to people in terms of, and things that interest you and I in terms of the oak aging, the wild ferment, the natural wine-esque element of beer at the moment is something that sommeliers, uh, restaurant owners, chefs love and they're very interested in. But the vast amount of restaurants actually they love beer for what beer is. You know, that brilliant after work, pre-dinner drink that you can grab an amazingly crisp, bright lager as you come in, first quenching, and it yeah. sets you up for the meal. And the great thing that somewhere like St. John does is actually the food matches to be able to have it all the way through. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably the interesting point of kind of the evolving menus that restaurants now have on the beer side of things that we've hopefully been quite a large part of is thinking about the types of restaurants that we're going into when they are going to be busy what kind of food are they putting on um, and then having a beer list that is balanced around it it doesn't have to be 20 beers long with everything from lager to a burgundy oak aged mixed ferment you know, Indeed. wild goat beer. Yeah, we're talking. You know, <laughs> I haven't tried that yet, by the way. Um, it, Sounds good. It's it's actually just sort of going right. Where do we start? What did you have before? Right, you had Heineken and Peroni and yeah. Sol and six mass-produced uh, lagers. Right. Yeah. Well, what can we do? What can we put on that helps everyone kind of get to a position to be able to be really proud of their beer list? So, thinking about right. We need that lager. Now, is it a lager that we want someone to have 4% easy drinking style lager? Mm-hmm. Or is it something actually we can push a li- even more on that sort of side of things and have a really kind of interesting Czech style Pilsner at 5% that has a little bit more depth, has a little bit more smokiness in there that will actually sit better with the food. Um, then moving up through the list that you have this really nice balance all the way through pale ales, IPAs and ambers yeah. that just sit really nicely. and. The staff are trained in terms of understanding that particular foods go really nicely with particular beers. The food and beer matching thing doesn't actually happen a huge amount. And for places that do do it and really invest in doing it, it works brilliantly. However, the majority, 90% of the restaurants that we deal with, you just put a balanced beer list together with understanding and buy-in from those owners and the staff to know that if someone's having the steak, there is a really great amber beer on there that's going to sit really nicely. If they're going to have, you know, if it's, I'm not sure what restaurant this is, but if they're going to have some sort of like know, kind one. of uh, oily fish, you know, having something with a little bit more zippy acidity in there yeah. as well that cuts yeah. through the oiliness, 
that you've got that fearless and you've got the, the ability to be able to be nimble and make those decisions and make those suggestions for mm. the customer mm. as well. So that really interests me how you're working to get the restaurant the restaurants into beer, but what I see as the challenge is how do we get the consumer coming to the restaurant interested in the beer? Because honestly, if I was coming here for dinner, I'd be really excited about the wine because yep. I know they have their own wine label. And I find that in a lot of restaurants, I read the wine list and go, wow, I'd never normally be able to get that. So, because a, a lot of the great wines, you can't buy in the supermarket or, or odd bins. You buy them in the restaurant. Yeah. So, you know, as someone who is into to good drinks, that excites me. And so I, don't, I might come and have a lager mm-hmm. when I start, or I might have a Negroni. So how do you then in turn say to the, the consumer, you should be drinking beer with your meal? What's, how do you overcome that challenge? I mean, this is something that's gonna happen over the next yeah. five, 10 years, but this, that's, that's something I'm really interested in. Yeah, I think it's, it's, I mean, it's a little bit of everything I've probably spoken about, a little bit. Um, and, it's very interesting with restaurants that we deal with who put a beer list on through us with the understanding that it's something that they probably should be doing. They're gonna be highlighted if they're not doing it. Yeah. That, that is the place that you're not going to walk in and maybe have a particular beer with your food. The training element of it, and I, I really can't stress it enough, is being in there and being visible. So our account managers, have so we have four uh, four account managers on the restaurant side um, so uh, Jess came from a, a wine background sort of for eight years James uh, has been in the wine industry for about 12 years and he's uh, just come over from Paul Roger and he looked after Glen Farkless whiskey for them um, and he's actually just kind of he unfortunately just failed his tasting exam on his master of wine course so it's well as master of wine it's, yeah. it's one of the most challenging yeah he did do very badly on the on the fault testing the other day but that's that's oh something that we, we didn't we'll brush it's, over master of wine is uh, well master cicerone is probably the closest thing we have yeah. to it in beer there's only 11 of them so far i think yeah and that's the thing you know you're still looking at sort of you know late 200s in the world of masters of wine yeah and that's been going um, for, for far longer than Cicerone yeah uh, so the idea is is getting these people um, getting firstly getting their knowledge right mm-hmm. um, so we don't sit with 80 brewers uh, we have a core list of about 20 brewers mm-hmm. and what that allows us to do is it allows all of our account managers to be experts in all of those beers so they go and spend days and weeks with brewers, all of our brewers, to get their knowledge absolutely as high as any other, anybody that works in any of those breweries. So they are the absolute experts. They come into a restaurant to talk to someone about the beer. You know that what they're telling you is right from right back from whoever started the brewery or the head brewer is saying exactly the same thing as they are as well. Mm-hmm. And that's massive for us. Um, you know, I was at a, we did a wild beer dinner the other day. Um, Whereabouts? And, uh, at, I knew you were going to tell me that. <laughs> It'll come back to me in a sec. And, it's all right, it's early. But Tim uh, actually did the dinner and um, he uh, kind of stepped in for the wild beer uh, reps and he you wouldn't have known that he wasn't from Wild Beer Brewery. Um, And it was great, and it was great to see, and really interesting to see uh, kind of that happen. So then it's sort of trying to sort of get, so if we put in one beer or 20 beers into a restaurant, 
they have to have training from us. It's non-negotiable. We are coming in and we are going to sit down with your team for 45 minutes and in a really light-hearted way, but talk you through service and pour and brewing, uh, you know, brewing process and then go into a little bit about all of the beers that you have on. Get them tasting them. Get them infused about where they're coming from. The people that actually kind of brew these beers. And that's the great thing about, that's the great thing about wine. That's why I loved working in wine. It's because every single winery that you worked with has an amazing story behind it. Mm -hmm. And beer is exactly the same. We're now joined by Trevor Gulliver, who founded St. John along with Chef Fergus Henderson 25 years ago. I didn't get the chance to get many questions in, but as you'll hear, I didn't need to. Enjoy. So as, as, um, as Will told you why I'm here, sort of. we're doing today. So I'm a beer journalist, beer writer, and I'm currently looking into where, because beer is going through its own revolution at the moment in terms yeah. of flavour and how that's changing, much like food and wine did over the last two decades. And I'm investigating how beer finds a place at the restaurant table. It's something that's, that fascinates me. Okay. So I'm here, starting here, and we're going on a bit of a tour today. So, how does, how does beer fit into St. John? Wine back once. I did the, I did the fire station Waterloo mm -hmm. uh, back in whenever it was. Maybe 25 years or so. And at that point, someone said to me, Mind the world was far different then. There was no food revolution. And in some kind of perspective, I was in that picture of 10 people on the front of Newsweek, is London, the new capital. You were actually probably. Not even done in GSE, GCSE. <laughs> well, it must be. Oh yeah, oh, Christ, it's But that was a famous turning point. As the uh, Rosie and Ruthie from the River Cafe, myself, and some others, and the fire station was seen to be um, seminal because it was the first use of a public building. Uh, it was in recession. The old Vic was going bust. Um, at that point, you know, uh, apart from Alistair Little. Um, Simon Hopkinson, maybe rolling. There wasn't a lot, really, it was still the usual bullshit. And um, so with pubs, you know. Um, the, the camera revolution was sort of there, but in a way it kind of faltered as it tends to. Um, and someone said to me, you can't do a bar with a restaurant. And that was like, why? They never work. Well, in fact, they were never tried. Um, and you know, you had that was a time when there were female friendly pubs that appeared, mm -hmm. which were then far too young. And that was really that was it, that was it. It was female friendly pubs, there's a new way. And then you had picture of piano and uh, all bar one and all that stuff. Um, and then beer sort of headed into the doldrums before maybe freedom, meantime, and and all of them doing mash in Manchester and that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, it was, a, it was a large fire station. We call it a fire station because it was a fire station, not for any particular silly reason. It was by the railway station. Um, it was the time when they were the Kabul city before the IMAX at, at uh, Waterloo, so we'd often had them popping in with their dogs on strings, catching fags. But it was really simple, and the most important thing was that, um, that it had good beer, and we had a great chef, and that's why it became seminal, and so it's been written about more than St. John. So, we became Young's biggest free trade account. Mm -hmm. Did you read my piece I wrote in Root and Bone? Um, I, when was that published? The current Root and Bone. Did I've not picked it? it up yet. You should read that, shouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll try and yeah, pick yeah, one up today. And honestly, I'm getting Peter just copying me and writing things <laughs> in Bible. Honestly, <laughs> dude, you're so shitty, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I speak with 
Um, that's a joke. <laughs> so basically, that's, I mean, we became Young's biggest free trade account outside of Twickenham. Okay. As in, on a rugby, the rugby thing. Um, uh, it was always uh, instrumental in what we did. Um, beer is food. Um, we treated correctly. Uh, I bemoan the loss of Young's because there are no London brewers. None of the new brewers are London brewers. They're all doing brews that. If we had a restaurant, we would be. It's all Tex-Mex meets meets every other chain that's in. Yeah, and that's, that's what that's what you beer is. Considered Fuller's. Still no, no. Fuller's is Market Garden brewery. Okay. It always was. Came down, came up, came down the river. It's quite tasty. It's fuller, redder, browner, mm-hmm. bitters. London bitter is. Read the article. Do you understand? Yeah. Well, it just stuns me that people don't know what London bitter is. I mean, it really is quite pathetic. Young's Ordinary, yeah. something like that. So there's Wimbledon Brewery, uh, which is quite young. Derek Prentice, who was at Young's for 40 years, he, they do a beer called Wimbledon Common, and I yeah. think that might fit your, your description. Yeah, it's basically, uh, in simple terms, it's so bitter that we did that joke about it makes a young child look like, like a bulldog chewing a wasp. It's bitter <laughs> because the nature of all beer comes from what it is. In fact, Pete did mention something about beer is now, of course, we've got... Some will fail now, obviously, because it has to end. Um, and it's actually where we started with Will, if I tell the story. So Melissa Cole showed me round. I said, I can't keep up with all this. And some it's quite ridiculous. And I go, you know, the best way in the world I can. I, I, I've brewed in a bit in the past. Uh, I was standing in a railway arch in Hackney and thinking, this is not very good. And then using hops to, you know, some people can brew, there's a gift to brewing. Uh, like some people cook, some people think they can, um, but most people can't in our in our uh, situation. So I just so by two o'clock in the afternoon at Craft Beer Rising, <laughs> where you would get a mix of pink trousers and tattoos and beards. It's quite weird. By two o'clock, the guy from London Brew said, "Trivia, just try this one." And it was pink. I said, "I've been here all day. That's enough. It's Saturday. I'm going out, and I'm not drinking that pink stuff. Mm-hmm. We can make a beer for you." <laughs> so. And I said to Mr. Andrew Hodgman, wild beer, they're very good, like their beers. It's very easy to pick out. It's very easy to pick that people are following the trend, or very easy people that are reinventing them as, as carrot growers in, in Bath. And you go, the soil doesn't make, doesn't grow carrots, mate. Mm. And just because it's a railway arch and you've got four ingredients doesn't mean you're a brewer. Mm. That's why Evans, is, um, my view is that Evans taken, he's just just had enough. He's just backing off of this whole thing now. Mm. You know, it's just, it just not, that's why it's closing. You won't, won't do the, the beer mile. I mean, that's just at some point that's going to implode. It's doubled our rent at the bakery. Yes, yeah. It doubled our rent, and the network rail promised they wouldn't do that. And it took them two years to, to sort it out, and then they doubled it anyway because we created employment. There was no one there. And they doubled it and um, asked us to go seven days to pay the back rent. We didn't take it. You know, oh, sorry about that. <laughs> but that's so that that's a bubble that's going to burst. And equally, a lot of the beers are not very good. And equally, they're not they're not set in their um, uh, completely off the subject. Not, they're not <laughs> set in their environment. But beer, like wine, like anything you drink around the world, the, the Inuits drink different things. Uh, relates truly and properly to climate and circumstance, cost, water quality, all that kind of stuff. You know. All the new beers, which I know you're saying that there's new craft beer is still rising. Uh, well, that's kind of showbiz. And that's like trying to be, uh, that's like the pop market. And good brewers are always good brewers, you know. So, so I, I digress. 
but that's so how it turned out. So I just said to myself, I said, I can't. I could, how do I get? How's this? How do I sort this out? And so she said, Well, speak to Will. There was somebody else. Think. So I spoke to Will. So come and have lunch. Always an easy ticket that one. Yes, please. <laughs> Yeah. Like when he worked one nurse. bloody day, that's it. He only came for lunch with him. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> so, but it, so what I said to Will was, was um, simply was, um, uh, right, this is how it works. You will uh, sort out, choose, select, interact, all the beers in the three locations, this through, still through now. Um, you'll change them, they'll be seasonal, they'll be interesting. Um, you'll charge us best prices. Mm-hmm. Oh, and you'll and you'll do this. Oh, no, this, you don't get this for nothing. Um, and basically, uh, be, the, be the conduit so that we always have because we we hadn't become tired. And I did see that. I did read the thing while I was just reading the Bible on the tube that you know Harvey's Harvey's. I first had Harvey's. Um, what is that summer hours on they call it? Whatever that start that fashion for another, it's another bloody market, it's a bit like mm-hmm. rosé wine, oh we better have rosé on the list, <laughs> you're a winemaker, got to have a portfolio, and um, they're still good brewers, and I read it, well, yeah that's good, they're still good, they're still good, that's still good, yeah. so um, some of these things we go back a long way and we have a relationship, um, I've done many bars really, quietly otherwise, this is the only one that has draft Guinness, because I really don't appreciate Diageo, mm-hmm. and the way they charge, charge for that beer, mm-hmm. You know, it's some people here that want it and that's fine. So basically, uh, a new way of thinking is for someone like me, if you like, because people don't do that, or they employ buyers or beer buyers who spend, you know, I just always say, what's it say on his car before I get myself into trouble? Um, so basically, as a, if someone like me uh, decides that there is so much happening, and I, and I welcome it wholeheartedly, yeah. Uh, what I don't welcome is is just the um, it's like all things. It is fad, fashion, hip, um, etc. And I have always been something that it's it is rooted in the ability to understand your metier, to consistently make good stuff. So when I try that again, and it can be a wine, I go, it will change the vintage, but I know the guys made it. I've always enjoyed that wine. Mm. So at the moment, it's just it's a special cuvées. And all that kind of stuff. Well, it's, it's a bit of fun, and if you're lucky, you'll get plucked by one of the bigger ones. It's the same mm. of the Monopolies Commission, the, the Beer Act. Mm. You know, basically, Whitbread and people just did the umbrella system. They just took shareholdings in, which are now subsumed. So I don't know that the real revolution that you're talking about, it's not a revolution, it's just that as things move along. Yeah. Life will always be, the way with social media and everything, will always now be these, these curves, sadly. Yeah. Um, and you just hope that within it, if you sit, took harbour and, and beers like that, um, not getting in, in the, it has its own level of abuse amongst journalists and people there, doesn't it? And <laughs> being rude about each other, it's kind of always healthy. Mm. But you know, they make good beer, and you hope they'd be making good beer in 10, 15 years. Yeah. I'm walking and go, oh, great, I love that. Mm. So for me, it's about. Um, uh, I mean, t- t- you know, obviously we're, we're quite well known as a restaurant and everything else. And um, you know, the old Jay was Michelin's last week, so someone said, "Do you know what? Do you know what? If you, do you know if you kept yours?" I went, "I tell you, if we'd lost it, they'd be on the phone, like, the journalists." <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Was that how it works? Yeah, because yeah, I don't normally. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well done, you kept your stuff. Oh, did we? <laughs> <laughs> but we? But people want to drink beer, yeah. and beer in a, in a restaurant. 
and a beer in a bar. So the the answer is that it's all things. To, it's we're not we're a restaurant with a bar. This is this, the bar which we re, when we reworked uh, bread and wine. It's a small bar. The bar is a very useful thing. A bar is part. A restaurant is part of a streetscape. A restaurant is local. Mm. So each restaurant, you know, restaurants do man of different things. So it seems to be just a natural thing to have a bar. Yeah. And I just, and since the fire station. Um, which is the first open kitchen in London. I mean, Dan was bonkers, but boy, he was a brilliant chef. Mm. Um, and lost his way in the end. But, you know, that we went from, I don't know, 4,000 a week. I remember being Campbell amongst all the... I think he can't be applying for a license. <laughs> Plus his, his lawyer's this big. Yeah. And Campbell, it was like very interesting social experiments, like being first time on a bus. In, around about 11 o'clock at night, or 12 o'clock, leaving. I was, just happened to be in um, in Shoreditch on Saturday night. That bloody corner by Browns, which still goes, and, and just from the outside the clover, there's ah, what people being sick, women falling over. It's like, it's like I haven't seen that since one night in Cardiff. <laughs> I happened to be there for a rugby match. <laughs> Saturday night, wow, oh, cranky. <laughs> Oh, it was shocking. So I digress. But for us, um, because and you listen the way we uh, we talk, uh, you know, we we do things that we uh, want to do and things that are right. But the, the, the building works right. We think a bar is an integral part of. It's not a pub. Um, an integral part of what we do. Um, the bar menu is is different. So it's here all day. Um, and what a restaurant and a, and a Good bar is is all the things where people meet, people sit down, people go and drown their sorrows, people um, they can eat upstairs, eat here. So it, where it's where it sits, obviously our audience is shocking work. It's very big. There's now. almost a pub mentality to it. I, I don't want pub mentalities. I, I don't get confused with a gastro pub. No. When David and um, Michael did the Eagle, mm. I did the fire station. Michael uh, just based that on the Eagle. I said it's. A, Public building, I was like, what are you talking about? I've never been to Bloody Eagle, mate. <laughs> My partner been about four times, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, and then, and then that, that was the start of gastro pub. But that's uh, the thing you've got to say is that the, uh, they were using old spaces in a different way. Mm. And the idea, people forget the phrase female friendly pubs and bars. So, in fact, what you had was again that started with people using other spaces. Mm-hmm. So, a department store or a small shop. So, a lot of the all by ones, and then you had regeneration through through um, catering. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but if you saw those sites, they moved away from the pubs because pubs were grottier and getting grottier. And there isn't, there's many reasons why they, you know, too many closed still, but that some are, are real reasons because they were not sustainable and they didn't have the right people to run them or to, to use them really. So now life, world has changed. So, But the idea that we're a pub is, uh, is a misnomer because a, a pub is, is a completely different thing. Everyone has their own character, St John has their own character. Mm. But it doesn't mean we, um, you know, because you have a cocktail here and we have a, hopefully a pretty good wine list. Yes. Right. You know, so, it's, so it's wrong to say that. But our, our attitude to uh, beer is, is very healthy, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't, it's never, it, to me it just seems obvious, and maybe that's because I'm, I'm a Londoner, so it doesn't, what to people who are a bit more, you know, set in their ways, doesn't seem obvious, so, um, 
well, we were walking here when it was derelict and squatted, we didn't seem obvious. So every time we, we tend to do things, it's, it's integral to uh, uh, us um, to have that offer. Now now with the doing the theatre, for example, that's that's so obvious. It's a bar and, and so. have I answered your question. Yeah, I think so. You answered all of them. So basically, I think um, uh, uh, the where it is from from Brewdog to I don't know. Yeah, let's pick the ones that everyone. Four people getting a bit of stick. Definitely Camden, but that Camden was a setup. Mm-hmm. I happen to know um, so-and-so's father not. <laughs> you know, because you, you pinch so-and-so, as you ask Alistair, pinch a bloody brewer, I'm a bloody recipe. So went, I went in there in, in Kentish Town, I looked at his, that big thing to collect his hops and all that, and went, holy shit. So why do you call it Camden? It's in Kentish Town. Well, I was like, not Kentish Town a bit more edgy? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we've we we done the drawings before we had the brewery. Um, you know, and, and all that stuff. Mm. Um, and in the meantime. But um, I don't know. There's not. There's not a beer revolution. It's already, that's already happened. Mm. What's going to happen is there'll be a beer devolution to give you a can because it's not. It's not sustainable um, now. I think Steve told me that's in Fortifoot. Said it was. We were talking since seventy this year. And see, I go back to uh, being in San Francisco when it, where it started mm. and drinking one Sunday afternoon. We were going to eat somewhere, it's a very quiet afternoon, summer shining, a bit windy, blue sky, we were staying on top of Nob Hill, and I said to us, right, we're going, I said, well, no, it's Sunday, we're going to go to this, went to this bar, and five spigots, five spigots, five spigots, and they did look how everyone has king cakes and stuff, and cakes underneath, I'll just do this, well, I said, no, we'll just do this, we sat there drinking beer, red beer, black beer, you know, and it was great, it's all that kind of, that knowledge, and that's, yeah. the other, that's the other thing is that um, I always want to be a brewer, really. <laughs> so I'd, I'm not, I'm not debunking what you, what you say, but the fact that um, I do bemoan that there isn't London bitter. Um, mm. Read the article. Uh, it's great that that, that will. I mean, almost Will's raison d'etre for us is that he, he's the conduit, he's the, he's the filter. Yeah. Because a lot of it is, you know, beer in cans. Then there's the, um, I, went, I did taste the, I went down the beer in bread thing, because I've, I've been told to enough if I didn't. I, I wish I'd known Tristan forever. I might do things that Tristan gets involved in sometimes. You know that, that. Why you ship bread to make to go into beer? Because all the, there's, there's 21 things in bread that we don't use: improvers, retarders, extenders. Yeah. I will say. Yeah. I mean, not very helpful, Joe. I said I'm just telling you. Yeah. But you will give us some bread. I mean, how much bread do you think we, we use out? Because we don't waste things. Yeah, that's what I mean. That's what I mean too. Oh yeah. Oh bugger, this isn't working. <laughs> It's kind of, it's, there's a, a shakeout you. I mean, I think it's great. I think that, um, with due respect to uh, beer sommeliers, it's bullshit. I don't work with sommeliers. I am famous. If you're an American, you say two things, either the word some or awesome, I will either tell them to walk out the room and say, as a chef go, dink. So it's like dink. And I don't, I don't, you know, I don't, I, that's just, that is just upgrading by bullshit, your uh, sense of self-perception. Um, what beer should be is, and it's, you know, um, it's kind of good to see some of the supermarkets taking some of these things on board and rotating them. Mm-hmm. But um, 
whether you'll get beer in restaurants, I think you just have to be patient. And because uh, in a way, we've been doing it for years. Yeah. For about 25 years. Absolutely. So, um, I mean, our, our selection of those is much better now. Um, but you know, I, 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 I'm sure this current wave, but it, it just worries me like Apple. Mm. They're already working out is Chambry moving to next Apple? Will it be Lillet? Will it be so and so? So, when, when people do things to make sure they've got an offer that people are coming in a, in a time of deep, um, the business, when the, this is an annual thing, but our business is in recession and the company's in, the country's in recession effectively because of the Brexit thing. Mm. But when people are just seeking new ideas for an edge in the market to get people to come into their uh, pub, bar, restaurant, that's, that, that's, uh, that's almost shameless. Whereas in fact, to make a sustainable, this is quite important, to make a sustainable, uh, um, and it is a microbrewery thing, a sustainable small brewery uh, culture, uh, what's got to happen is that the current economic situation has got to calm down. Because people are just chasing, if it's a bright can, they might take it. Mm. If something is, like, you know, I can say it's like Camden was very well thought out from the beginning. Yes, indeed. And they have just delivered for their investors, etc., big time. Well done. Yeah, and the beer is, is pretty, is, is certainly harmless. You know, um, you better not say that, but we all know it's harmless. So it's yellow beer. Because mm. I famously I just want a yellow beer. Someone just said a note from who was in San Jose going, just having yellow beer at Sanzo Sanzo. <laughs> I drink yellow beer. I just want to clean my gorge. And, um, yeah, so that, I mean, that's quite important. Is that, that, that what you want it to be is a part of, of culture, which therefore it will be in restaurants. Mm. That youngsters will ask for. But you know, it's a bit like everyone wants to come work in London. Uh, where are they now? They're not in London anymore. It's just, it kind of cycles. So, and I had a nice beer at. Uh, Clove, and I've just forgotten what it was. H, so it's quite expensive, and it's um, oh shit, sealed label, doesn't matter. But that's the sort of thing they'd have. Mm-hmm. There used to be a long time ago when you were even born, you got the pub, and there was low and brown, refreshingly dear, or refreshingly expensive. Mm-hmm. It was famous, yeah, it was like seven and sixpence for a bottle. When I was a student, it would get pissed on a pound because it was ten p a pint in the in the union bar. Never <laughs> 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 grew, but you know. <laughs> but that, but that bit is quite important for this. Yeah, maybe. And then people like Will, rather than uh, the idea of a beer sommelier, you can't afford a beer sommelier. If anyone serves you uh, anything in a restaurant or bar, they should know everything about what they serve you. Mm. They don't have to be a sommelier. They don't have to be this, but they should know because that's part of the hors d'oeuvre, that's part of the enjoyment. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I see the way through now is for the, like, sell, sell the old wholesale, the old middleman again. Yeah. You know, so and now we're in the world of big middlemen and huge wholesalers. And even, I mean, the wine business is the same. You had people, uh, different generations come through and, and have little companies. Some survive, tend to survive by going large. And some just because they've just got the, the knack of making it work. But to, to be truly last is kind of tough. Mm. And also maybe for all those small restaurants, independent bars, etc., out in the sticks, they want access to that, which they're never going to taste in 
Um, that there are rules for that world. So maybe in the old days, it's sort of like the guy that's got get the, get the beer man to come. Because it's only it'll only work if people can buy it, and see what to buy. Going to a beer festival or beer tasting is, is you only get to taste what's in the room. I'm now going to read a piece by one of our contributors, Tim Anderson. You might know Tim better as the chef, owner and founder of Namban, a fantastic little Japanese fusion restaurant in Brixton, South London. Or you may have heard of him because he won MasterChef in 2011. No mean feat. This article is called The Fast and the Curious, Discovering the Wider World of Citrus. Are lemons fast or slow? This is the question posed by Professor Barry Smith, director of the Centre for the Study of the Senses, University of London, at the beginning of our discussion about citrus. I consider it for a split second, then reply, fast. Lemons are fast. Of course they are. Barry nods. Everybody says fast. And that's cross-cultural. That's universal. We can put that question to the web. We can pass it all around the world and people will say lemons are fast. Bananas, slow. And that seems intuitively right, but we don't know why. It does seem intuitively right. Lemons are fast. They're immediately stimulating and evocative. If you think of the word lemon, your mouth will start to water involuntarily. Lemons demand a response, and a quick one. I think that has to do with the speed of reaction to the taste of acid, Barry explains. Your sour receptors act very quickly. As soon as you get some contact with a fruit that's acidic, they'll fire. Boom! Whereas sweetness has a slow onset. A banana has almost no sourness, but it has a slow build-up of sweetness. And then it lingers. That makes it natural to think of bananas as slow and citrus as fast. Zingy, enlivening, uplifting, energising. When you break open the skin of a tangerine squeeze a wedge of lime over a bowl of noodles, or slice open a grapefruit, a fine mist of oils and juice escapes from the fruit, wafting up to your nostrils and coating your fingertips with a persistent perfume. There is such promise in that spray. It sends a signal to your brain to prepare for refreshment, for a jolt of vitamin C, for a flavour that can transport you to California, Kosamui, or Christmas at your nan's. Citrus aromas can induce feelings of both nostalgia and excitement, often simultaneously. Drinks producers are constantly trying to capture that distinct citrus mist. Few have been as successful as Square Root, Hackney's pioneering and award-winning soda makers. For founders Robin Sims and Ed Taylor, lemons are fast in a different way. Their fruit-to-bottle process takes about 36 hours, a brisk pace that must be maintained to ensure minimal loss of flavour and aroma. When they first started out, Robin explains, they were trying to make drinks that tasted as fresh as possible. But as they've grown and have gained access to higher quality ingredients while facing increasing competition, Robin says they've shifted to try and make their product the best. But after chatting to Robin and Ed for a while, I got the impression that fresh and the best are often the same thing. I couldn't stop thinking of the old culinary cliché, fresh is best. Ed is even more of a hardliner, fresh or nothing, he says. That's true of most fruit, but it's particularly important for citrus, because of how quickly their volatile aromas dissipate and degrade over time. 
But of course, even the freshest of fruit is useless if you don't process it properly. Ed rails against products whose labels boast misleading and ultimately meaningless claims about provenance, like made with Sicilian lemon juice. The juice may be from Sicilian lemons, but then, as Ed explains, it's pasteurised and put into a tub. The tub can be kept ambient for any number of months, then it'll be repasteurised after the first time it's blended, and then it'll go into another supplier that will potentially make that into a syrup, which will get repasteurised again. Then it'll go into bottle, and it'll get repasteurised again. So that product could have been pasteurised four times, and you lose something every single time. All of this sounds needlessly complex, and quite obviously detrimental to the flavour of the finished product, especially when compared to Square Root's method, which is more labour-intensive, but more direct. It's not that different from how you might make fresh soda at home, just on a much larger scale, and with much cooler kit. The fruit is washed, then juiced. In the case of citrus, the rinds are poached in a sugar syrup to infuse their oils. The juice and syrup are then blended, carbonated, and bottled. Finally, the bottles are pasteurised at a low temperature. That's it. We crack open a few bottles of raspberry lemonade, bottled the day before. It's amazingly good. So full of ripe raspberry flavour, I almost expect to find seeds stuck in my teeth after drinking it. Later on, I sample a bottle of their Seville Mandarin Soda, made specifically to capture the oils from the peels of Seville oranges and Sicilian mandarins. It has a gorgeous floral herbaceous aroma, and also a totally unexpected tingly bang sensation, Ed's words, on the lips. Something I've only ever gotten from fresh citrus peels before. Never from a drink. It's an astonishing whole fruit experience. We deconstruct citrus pretty well here, says Ed, modestly. Over the course of our chat, a number of our other favourite citrus fruits come up. Yuzu, Maya lemons, finger limes, tangelos, mandoras, mandelos, decapon, calamansi, limequats, taroko blood oranges. And one in particular, we all agree is a seriously underrated and underutilised fruit, bergamot. After rinding them, your hand is just dripping with oil, Robin says. And she tells me a story about how their quest for the best fruit led them to an Italian farmer who was very attached to his bergamots and nearly rejected their order after exclaiming, no, my bergamots are perfume quality only. Luckily, in the end, he was convinced to supply them after learning about their process and the high calibre of their sodas. But it's that commitment to sourcing the best possible produce that sets Square Root apart. Of course, if sourcing great citrus in the UK is a challenge, imagine what it's like to actually grow it here. There is just one dedicated citrus nursery in Britain, the Citrus Centre in West Sussex, founded by Chris and Amanda Dennis 25 years ago. They were initially drawn to raising citrus because they relished the challenge. It all started with one small calamansi tree, Chris explains. We picked up one at the garden centre, took it home and then had real trouble trying to keep it alive. They eventually realised that citrus trees need to dry out thoroughly in between waterings, something they discovered by accident after leaving a lime tree in a particularly sunny and well-drained corner of the garden. That little tree ultimately produced enough blossoms for Amanda to wear in her hair and include in her bouquet at their wedding. That initial joyous success set them on a course to grow all sorts of new citrus varieties, now contained in a series of temperature-controlled greenhouses. 
In early May, when I visit, these greenhouses are a paradise in Pulborough. A dense jungle of glossy green leaves with glimmers of yellow and orange fruit, shining through the foliage like rays of sunlight. But what hits me first is the smell. Many of the plants are inflorescent, and the aroma is like hot jasmine tea. Chris and Amanda agree that the smell of the fresh citrus fruits and flowers is exceptionally invigorating. But when I ask them whether lemons are fast or slow, they're the first people to suggest that they might actually be slow. They feel fast, but they're not a quick fruit to grow, says Chris. They take time in our climate. It's not like a lettuce plant where you plant a seed and 20 days later you've got a lettuce. Amanda concurs, explaining how citrus trees take years to blossom and then take many months, sometimes more than a year, to produce fully ripe fruit. I pose another question. Is citrus summery or wintry? I myself am of two minds about this. While I mostly associate citrus with sipping Arnold Palmer's or margaritas on sunny summer days, most of my favourite citrus, like yuzu, grapefruit and decapon, actually fruit in the winter. Chris says it depends on the fruit. Like many British people, he associates oranges with winter, and particularly Christmas, due to the tradition of stuffing satsumas into stockings. But others, like lemons and limes, are more summery, because that's what you need for your gin and tonics. I'm reminded of a story Professor Smith told me about the Greek goddess Persephone. As punishment for eating three forbidden pomegranate seeds while in the captivity of Hades, Demeter decided that Persephone would have to spend three months of the year in the underworld, during which time the earth would grow cold and dark, and crops would not grow. This is why we have winter, according to the legend. English aristocrats in the Stuart period took to raising exotic plants in their greenhouses and made a particular point of growing pomegranates in the winter months as a direct rebuke to Persephone's punishment, commanding nature and creating their own summer in defiance of the gods. I can't help but feel that growing citrus, eating citrus and bottling citrus sodas in England are similar acts of rebellion against the heavens. So bring on the grey skies, cold winds and rain. We can make our own sunshine in the form of these most improbable, most enlivening, most wonderful fruits. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you'd like to support the content we produce at Pellicle, please consider supporting us via Patreon. You can sign up by visiting patreon.com forward slash Mag. Please also consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice, as this will help more people find the show. Until next time, I've been your host, Matthew Curtis, and you've been listening to The Pellicle Podcast. Podcast.